You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, thanks for coming along and welcome to the M Pavilion. A really good topic tonight, housing, belonging and identity. Broad range. We've got really good panellists here to sort of flesh this one out. Um, and we'll do, uh, we'll, we'll sort of go till about sort of uh, seven o'clock-ish and then open it up to discussion, panel, you know, questions, everything else as you'd normally expect here. So um, hang on to your questions and we'll come around to them a bit later on. Um, firstly, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung people um, of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the country we are meeting on today. We pay our respects to their elders, ancestors and spirits of the land and acknowledge their continuing custodianship and cultural practices. We also pay our respects to any Aboriginal people who have joined us today. Uh, we are very grateful for your generous contribution to this discussion and our profession. Our intention in organising this gathering is to better understand how we, as designers on country, can help to re recognise and rebuild connections in the landscape and in communities through our projects. Um, and that's, a, I mean, I think as a topic in itself, that's a really interesting one about Indigenous ways of doing things. And I think there's a lot of work being done. I'm involved in a number of projects and some quite big infrastructure projects that are looking at ways uh, we can reconnect uh, through, through to country through Indigenous ways of doing things. Um, and there's a big there's a big movement going on worldwide, I think, in, uh, in called largely termed engineering with nature, looking at ways in which we can go back and look at uh, other practices and more traditional practices in the way we do things. The US military, in fact, are doing this as a better way of connecting, a better way of doing things generally. Um, as I think we as humans for a long time have thought that the best way to solve problems is to engineer them, when quite often the uh, engineering solution is looking us in the face like a tree or something like that that might do it a lot better than we could ever do. Um, so I'm not going to talk for long. Um, I think you know the the, um, the topic tonight is really is really quite broad um, and looks to the problems we have with housing. Um, and I, I went to an infrastructure briefing just uh, a week or so ago, and they talked about to a, U a UTS study about all the issues we've had with building infrastructure in our across the nation, and all the issues they came up with um, were not new. And they said, these are things we all know and we know the solutions to them, um, but we're not doing them. And I sort of feel the same about housing uh, in some ways. I think almost every year at M Pavilion, I host one of these talks about issues with housing. Um, and <clears throat> since I remember a report that Jane Francis, Francis Kelly did in 2011 for the Grattan Institute talking about the issues of housing across the country that said mainly the only sorts of housing we're really delivering are those big sort of towers full of apartments and housing on the periphery and not a lot in between and it's a pretty limited approach to how we might live in our, in our society and how we might engage with our great landscape. So, um, and I feel like we haven't really come very far since then. So, particularly with, uh, in relation to social housing, equitable housing and, um, and how we might just live better with our, with our planet. Um, but we've got some people here on the panel who have, might have some better ideas around that, so hopefully we can take them on board and maybe implement them into our everyday practice. Um, so uh, um, what we're sort of aiming to look at here maybe is some alternative models of housing and how we might do them in a reasonable manner and, and, and a way that we can actually you know, achieve them. And I think Nightingale's a great example of that and uh, Jeremy and the crew there have done, and Jessica here who's on the panel, have done a fantastic way of actually starting to implement different ways of development models um, so, and, and the others on the panel here, and I'll introduce them uh, as we go along. 
Um, I might, I might introduce them as individually as they, as they get up to speak, because each one's going to do a little 10-minute presentation. Um, and we are... Sorry, I've got numerous bits of paper I need to get through here. I'm going to start with Marty Fuchs, um, who has extensive experience both locally and internationally working on a number of highly acclaimed complex and groundbreaking projects. Her ongoing passion for landscape architecture remains uh, in its potential to... Sorry, so it remains in its potential to advocate for equity, combat the climate crisis and challenge the status quo. She is currently Senior Associate at Rushright Associates and a member of the Victorian AILA Executive. So over to you, Marty. Thank you. Um, you can hear me well. That's all good. Um, yeah, so my name is Marty. I'm a landscape architect and a um, planner by training. I am... Um, I'm currently on the um, AILA executive as well as practising, which is why I kind of ended up on this panel because I've been working on a couple of social housing projects at work but then also had to kind of look at some key documents through the advocacy committee which um, has made me kind of think about where housing um, and the, the planning behind it as well as the landscapes that those documents create are going to inherently create um, impact our city. So... Yeah, I guess typically um, landscape architects are um, involved in the design, construction and planning, but for some reason for this talk I have kept ending up thinking about what happens when the designers and the planners are no longer involved and we've made all these assumptions about what we're designing and then, um, you know, are they working and who's really um, engaging with those. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about some ideas around um, management and maintenance as well. So the um, apartment guidelines um, of Victoria stipulates that there should be 2.5 square metres of open space contribution per development. The World Health Organisation says that um, an individual needs nine square metres. So we're not committed to that goal, but I guess that's just a way of kind of gauging where our planning documents are kind of positioning us um, in terms of, um, you know, global sort of standards um, and that we're maybe not... Um, hitting the bar particularly high. Um, we also don't have an endorsed open space strategy, so we have no overarching document that's going to guide how our open spaces um, are going to come together and um, just by their nature link together to create a, a network, um, which I think is a problem. We do have lots of other documents that refer to where and how, but... Um, we are lacking in a sort of overarching document, I guess, which is something which is kind of being worked on now and we're participating in that conversation and, um, you know, we want to keep, keep doing that. But I guess that's the context for why I think that these little open spaces that come with developments um, of multi-residential developments become even more important because that's what we're getting at the moment. So they're, they're kind of what we've got. So are they working and how can we make them work better. Uh, <laughs> we didn't get a bib. Um, yes. So I guess, um, yeah, these little landscapes should have ideas of um, sustainability, equity, um, identity and ownership at the forefront of their design. And there are lots of examples of how um, we can do this. One of those, which isn't a um, residential development, but it's a public realm project project. Um, which I worked on in Perth called Yagan Square and it had um, the consultation process with the Wajuk Working Group at the forefront from, the, from day one, which meant that 
all the way through. We were having conversations with key individuals and with that community as a whole. And then um, by the time construction was completed, you could you could see a um, you know there's multiple artworks. Sharon Egan and Richard Wally were involved in sort of key outcomes. But then there's an overall kind of structure of that space, which um, is sort of leaning towards a new cultural language around how to design public space. So I think that, you know, it can, it can be done. Um, yeah, I guess just um, <clears throat> then moving on to how those notions of identity and ownership can then also um, play out in terms of the maintenance and management of these spaces. So I guess... The maintenance of their communal spaces um, are typically run by a body corporate. They're then subcontracted to a landscape maintenance contractor. And unfortunately, um, my apartment block is no exception to this where they're not doing a great job or they've got the bare minimum in their contract and they're coming through and just hacking up the grasses that should have seasonal change or, um, you know, there's sort of... Unfortunately, those contracts mean that the landscapes aren't um, maybe in poor health. Um, they have very little seasonal change, which you may see in a, in a um, more natural landscape or in a really well-maintained garden like this. You'll have plants come in and change and you'll get different colour and textures. Um, but then also what those contracts do is um, uh, they, they essentially cut out any opportunity for tenants to really garden in those spaces. So we talk about ownership and identity, but if you can't garden in your own open space, <laughs> then, um, you know, you've got your balcony and then where are you going to have, a, you know, have those opportunities to meet and greet? So I think that there's, there's, a, there's a problem in that where, you know, we might be able to design and plan and build and, you know, breathe this, got this new model, which I think is fantastic, but then it's also, yeah, that... The, the design of maintenance and the design of that ongoing um, legacy of those spaces. I, um, I recently asked a, um, a tenant of a small apartment block what made her feel a sense of ownership of, and of the communal space and her response was simple yet enlightening. She said, time and opportunity. After a year of never entering the space, she's now built raised planters cleaned away waste materials and building a community with her neighbours. So I wonder if our communal, communal open spaces really allow enough opportunity um, for a sense of ownership and identity to grow over time if time is the most important factor. Um, and that's, you know, from my experience of gardening, I know that I need to procrastinate and come at it a little bit or, you know, let them die and do it next season and have my own time to do it, not be facilitated by some curated space activation gardening program to grow things and meet people. I don't respond well to that and I wonder whether maybe there's lots of people that might unfortunately feel the same. Um, so, yeah, I think that there... Um, the point being is that I think that there's um, great potential for designers and governments and developers to be um, designing the maintenance and management of these places particularly the open space and structures that empowers the tenants to garden, occupy and build a relationship with their place over time. Um, and I think that um, my sense is that um, Annie Shirley is going to talk a bit about um, her sort of building a garden, so it's going to be a really nice sort of flow on, I think. Um, yeah, and then my, 
Um, another final sort of comment is that I went to the Transformation Equity and Architecture conference run by Parler and Melbourne University last week. And I think there was one thing that really stood out to me um, and that's that the people who design our cities should be as diverse as those who live in them. And then I think that this also applies to the people who um, take care and maintain and garden in them. So, thank you. Thanks, Marty. So questions there, we'll maybe come back to them. Um, we're going to go to Carl now. Um, yeah, Professor Carl Grodich, uh, he's Director of Urban Planning and Design at Monash University, um, developing sort of strategies on uh, the theory on equitable housing and building communities belonging on identity. Would be, um, great to hear from you. Hi, yeah, actually, and I'm Carl Grodock. Grodock so, sorry, yeah, Grodock, yeah. So I moved to Melbourne a couple of years ago and helped to start a new urban planning and design program uh, at Monash. And it's actually really great and I think really fits in the spirit of our program to be on a panel here with landscape architects and people who talk about the micro scale of the garden and housing. Um, I'm probably going to talk more at the larger scale of the planning context. I was asked to talk about strategy and theory around equitable housing and think about um, community building. And these are extremely important topics that are really hard to talk about on a day like today. I have to say it's just so beautiful that getting very serious about these things is sort of difficult, but nonetheless, I'll try. Um, when I was asked to do the talk, I, it was actually a great framing for me because when I think about housing, particularly housing and equity, it's, I'm immediately thinking about questions beyond housing because housing is situated in a place. It's in a context and that has a huge influence in terms of what kind of quality housing we get, how that might reflect on our sense of identity, our sense of belonging and, and, and so forth. Because the communities that we're from, of course, they have an influence on the kind of ties that we have, the social networks that we make. Um, and, and in this sense, thinking about identity belonging, but also, extremely important is housing community plays a role in our access to opportunity. And that, of course, plays a huge role around identity belonging. So where we live has an influence on what kind of quality education, employment, health, um, opportunities, recreation, arts, um, the kind of social mix that's in our neighborhood. All these things play out in terms of who we are. So for, for me, I, I think large scale, but I'm also thinking through these, how these things also um, work at a smaller, more micro scale. The other thing that's kind of in the back of my head is that community isn't just a play space kind of contained sort of entity, but it's influenced by forces from outside, of course. Um, so government investment in infrastructure um, influences that access to opportunity. Um, global real estate investment uh, global headquarter firms that um, influence the kind of employment dynamics in places, um, and of course, property markets. Um, we price land based on the location and access to all of these resources. So if you're in a good location, you're going to be paying more. I mean, all of this is, I think, you know, familiar. CBD, of course, has higher real estate values than the outer suburbs. Um, but what happens is we either have to or decide to make locational trade-offs where we are forced to move further from these resources because 
A, we cannot afford to live close there, or we say we have certain values about suburban environments or homeownership that says we want to uh, live further out from where we see a concentration of jobs in the center of the city in, in cities like Melbourne or Sydney. Um, and, and so it's really, part of it is this trade-off to think about, um, but it's also the market that is influencing this trade-off that has created the kind of spatial mismatch between jobs and housing that we have um, in our cities today. So what's happening is we have a market that's delivering our housing, but it's not necessarily giving us what we want, where we need it. Um, and I think that's my jumping off point. And I think suburban communities for all their, you know, way their critique can still be places where people have a sense of belonging and they have strong community ties, but we also have to think about um, these market realities as well. Um, and so equitable housing to me is in a sense of fundamentally a question about the kind of places that we create and that we plan for. Um, and I think that's why we've really historically failed, whether Australia or the U.S., where I'm from originally. Um, we've kind of failed at housing policies. We don't put it in the urban context. We tend to focus just on housing. We're not thinking about the links to employment and health and everything else. Um, that is extremely important. And I think now, today, we are starting to think through some interesting new models for housing. Um, and, and delivering housing, but really what we need is a national community development initiative that incorporates housing into it that's going to tackle this problem broadly. I mean, we're, we're not gonna really get anywhere without that. We need to think about the supply of affordable housing, we need to think about the equitable distribution of housing, and we need to think about housing's connection to communities and neighborhoods. Um, Recent strategies, I think probably over the last five years in Australia that start to tackle this reality tend to be market-based. So there's market-based planning mechanisms that say, we're gonna look beyond just the delivery of a housing, but we're gonna tie that, that affordable housing supply to changes in the market. Um, and I think typically through development contributions um, or through um, incentivizing affordable housing. And these, the two things that I'll mention briefly, I think they should be familiar to most people, um, value capture, value sharing strategies, and inclusionary zoning. And both of these work on sort of social equity and social efficiency grounds. So basically saying, um, the market does not efficiently distribute affordable housing within a metropolitan area, so there's argument for policy to jump in and to create a balance. At the same time, as I'm saying before, um, because of this unequal distribution of affordable housing, affordable places tend not to have that access. Um, they tend to be in outer suburbs. Uh, and so it's an equity argument because not everyone has the same access to those resources, those services, that infrastructure to get them to, to work and so forth. Um, so value capture mechanisms or value sharing are basically saying um, when a public entity puts in an investment that it shouldn't just be the private sector that capitalizes on that, that some of that benefit should go back to the public, to the community. Uh, so you, major infrastructure development, uh, like the suburban rail that may be coming, uh, or other transportation infrastructure, changes in zoning. So we change single family to multifamily, that increases the value. We've done a great job of getting rid of all our really awesome industrial property that is a jobs base and turning it into kind of fake mixed use development. Um, which is essentially 
residential with some uh, retail on the bottom that quite a bit of is actually vacant and doesn't really do anything. So it's not even creating uh, mixed use. But anyway, that's an aside for today. Um, the other, you know, so, so it's this value uplift that, that the community should have some benefit. And so we're starting to explore some of these ideas here in terms of value capture in Australia. This is something that's been around for decades in the United States. Um, a great example is tax increment financing. It's been heavily critiqued. It has some benefits, it has some drawbacks, but essentially what, what happens is the anticipated increase in property value that comes from a new development or new investment is given over to a developer as an incentive to put in public investment uh, into an area. So a, a great example in an affordable housing context is in Portland, Oregon, where they now take 40% of their TIF money, the tax increment finance, um, and put it into affordable housing. And so over the last decade or so, that's produced about 2,200 new affordable housing units. And it's primarily looking at the center of the city. Um, so it has some good outcomes in terms of that housing supply um, on affordability. Um, the other, another program that I, that I hear a lot of talk about and my students and I talk a lot about is inclusionary zoning. This is essentially a mandate to say we want sustainable, equitable neighborhoods. Um, if we are going to see um, property upscaling and gentrification that results in the displacement of existing populations that we need to have some kind of requirement or some sort of incentive to provide for an affordable housing base there. Um, California has been really good in this area. They have long-term fair share housing requirements that sometimes work, sometimes don't. Um, more recently, Los Angeles has um, a, so almost a stealth zoning change called transit-oriented communities. It gives a density bonus and relaxed planning standards around transit if you, if you will give in to an affordable housing fund. This is, in the last two years, led to 2,200, also as a coincidence, um, new affordable housing proposals around these transit sites in Los Angeles alone. So a lot of possibility with these, these sort of proposals, but the, you know, and they, they are delivering on some affordable housing supply, but the fact is they're market-led and they are tied to the very problem that I started out talking about in terms of access to opportunity. Um, so they're bringing in that as housing supply, but at the same time, some of the problems are that in order to get these new units, we demolish the old units. So we have existing older housing that's affordable by its nature, and we may be losing some of that. Um, another potential problem is that they can drive speculation. Developers see that with the value uplift, they have the chance to build more units that could drive up prices for an area itself overall, even though we're getting the affordable units. Um, and the other thing that is a challenge here is that this primarily works in high demand areas. You're not gonna get value uplift in the outer suburbs where you're not seeing a, a huge crazy price increase with a zoning change, for example. So these strategies that we talk a lot about aren't necessarily tackling the spatial mismatch between jobs and housing and, and dealing with the challenges we have in our outer suburbs. So I think we also need to look towards solutions that aren't necessarily market-based, look at comprehensive community initiatives. This is a great program that Obama had that sort of has faded for various reasons, but it was really about the theory that interconnected problems, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, interconnected problems have interconnected solutions, so we can't just tackle housing alone. We also have to think about family well-being and health. We have to think about education, employment, workforce training, and so forth. Um, Mixed outcomes in the short period that it was there, but it, you know, it's a promising opportunity that should be applied, and I think applied at a national level if we are gonna actually see anything happen on equitable housing in Australia and in Melbourne. So 
I don't know how much new I'm talking about here, but hopefully it's um, food for thought um, and it will, will stimulate some discussion. Thanks. That's great. Thanks, Carl. Um, yeah, there's lots, of, uh, there's lots of things we could sort of dive into there and, um, and maybe come back to. I'm really keen to understand what you think of... Well, there's not really a great deal of policy coming from... They talk about 20-minute neighbourhoods, but there's no real kind of understanding about how you actually do it. It's a great ideal, but there's no real great mechanism for achieving that or kind of great understanding of how that might be delivered. Yeah, so yeah, we could, we could talk about that. We're like, just involved in a community infrastructure project for 20-minute neighbourhoods too, so... Yeah, maybe we'll come back that. to that at the end and have a discussion around that. Um, uh, I want to throw over now to Jessica Wood. Um, uh, she's, as well as working at uh, Nightingale Housing in the communications and community role, um, she also teaches interior design program at RMIT and is currently undertaking her master's degree in architecture. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, she's also lived at the Commons since 2017 and is a resident in waiting, which is, it must be a new title now in the Nightingale world, is it, for, for the Nightingale Village project. So um, thanks, Jessica. Which, which one are you moving into? Who's, who's, uh, who's Park Life, Austin Maynard. Okay, well, what's the, what's the ETA for that now? It's officially April 2021. Officially, yeah. Um, uh, over to you, Jess. Um, yeah, so I think I was sort of asked to talk a little bit about the role of the designer, but I think probably I should... I think most of my perspectives come from working at Nightingale and understanding that as sort of a, um, a deviation, but also uh, a sort of rededication to the role of the designer, especially in the um, area of housing. Um, so to paint a little bit of a picture, I think um, the sort of blurb for this event kind of focused on this idea of identity, um, that particularly the identity that sort of middle class Australians have, um, or sort of, not, not sorry, the identity, but rather this kind of dream of owning the quarter acre block with the house on it, with the two bedrooms and the extra bathroom and having a car and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, sort of iconised by Howard Arkley in particular. Um, and that in this was kind of contrasted with what we have predominantly now in our CBD is this sort of um, mass-produced sky-rise apartment housing. Um, so I think, you know, what what is, you know, it is housing, what is actually wrong with it? Um, I think, you know, it's predominantly it's, you know, it's an aesthetic problem. I think we, we really sort of bulk at it because it's really in our faces a lot of the time, but there are actually, you know, pretty concrete reasons why it's not a good solution to housing. Um, one of those, well, I guess the predominant reason is that it's developer, it's built by developers. Um, and kind of as a result, 85% of these apartments are investor-owned, which as a result means that 85% of them are renter-occupied. But the issue is that... Um, the average tenure for apartments like the ones behind us is about 11 months. So going back to your point of time and it taking time to garden, time to develop community, I would say it doesn't leave a lot of time for that to happen. Add to this the fact that human beings sort of have the capacity to memorise about 150 names and faces um, at any one time. So, <laughs> so it kind of, they're sort of alienating structures from the beginning, I guess. Um, but then going back to that sort of, that Howard Arkley image that I guess a lot of us have in our heads, the second mode of housing that Simon talked about is this kind of fringe housing. Um, and it kind of does 
tick a lot of the boxes. You can have a quarter acre block, you can have two, two or three bedrooms, you can have bathrooms, whatever. And I think like if you took the sort of perspective, the image, took the photograph from the right perspective, you could almost overlay that over the Howard Arkley and it would be an almost perfect match. Um, so why does it kind of fall short? It's, it's kind of this zombification of that dream, I think. Um, so there are also really good reasons why that falls short, I think. Um, so what what do those reasons have to remember what they are? Um, basically, it's this kind of garage-to-garage -garage experience that you have living there. So you kind of get in your car, in your garage, the roller door goes up, you drive to your job, wherever that might be, maybe that's 40 minutes, 60 minutes, I'm not sure. Uh, you go into your car park there and you get out and you go to, go to your job, basically. Um, if you want to get milk, that's 1.2 k's to walk. Um, and so, so I think that, again, there's sort of, isn't that, that, that amount of time sort of spent in the car doesn't allow much opportunity for, um, you know, relationship to the neighbours, I guess. Um, and add to that the sort of financial burden of probably needing to have two cars, which is about $24,000 a year, which is not... It might be the dream, but maybe the dream is a little bit broken. I think that's kind of the point of this panel. Um, and so Nightingale, Nightingale Housing, where I work, um, positions deliberately tries to... Sorry, I had one more point to say about the sort of fringe, the fringe dwelling. I think the... I actually have kind of a farming background. My partner is a farmer. And it makes me quite sad to see these sort of fringe developments impinging further and further on what is really valuable arable land. The soil's so good you could pretty much eat them. And also sort of consuming our wetlands as well, which are sort of like the kidneys of our, of our environment, basically. So um, that being said, uh, Nightingale kind of positions itself in a sort of middle ground of housing. Uh, and it was started by architects, by the directors of Breathe Architecture in 2015. They're not here, so they can't fact-check fact me. Um, but, yeah, so even though it was started by architects, um, kind of importantly, Nightingale Housing, the company, I guess you call them, are not architects. Uh, they're also not developers as well. So Nightingale has never and never will develop a building in a sort of... Um, financial sense, I guess. Um, so I guess the best way to describe us in, you know, categories would be as a social enterprise. And what we do is we work with architects to deliver housing that is, our, our triple bottom line is financially, environmentally um, and sustainable, uh, financially, environmentally, socially sustainable. You say it so often you forget kind of what it means, I guess. Um, so how does that actually work? So Nightingale, the, I guess we kind of consult in a way, but the word consult sort of suggests like an arm's length involvement. But what we actually do is work very closely with architects to help them deliver multi-residential buildings um, that adhere to a set, quite a rigid set of Nightingale principles. And, and if it doesn't meet that those principles, we won't sell it to our purchaser base, which is about 10,000 people strong. So some examples of those principles would be uh, that all of the buildings have to meet at least 7.5 stars in the NatHERS rating scheme, which kind of equates to thermal efficiency, which in turn equates to the point of um, affordability. So if your home is more affordable, it costs less to run over time. Uh, another one would be 
that all buildings have, are fossil fuel free in operations, which means no natural gas is plumbed into the buildings. So it's all run on electricity. Um, something that Nightingale has developed is the embedded green energy network. So with the buying power of all the Nightingales together, we can go to Taz Hydro, for example, and buy bulk power in green for our buildings for cheaper than what most people pay for black power. Um, another principle, I guess, would be... Uh, so I guess like the, the most important and overarching principle, to my mind, is something called the Nightingale Caveat. Um, and that is a restrictive deed on the title of your apartment that says you can sell your apartment at any time. Um, but if you sell it, you can't sell it for more than what you paid, plus, plus the average indexing of houses in that area. Uh, and this comes basically from the fact that all Nightingale buildings, Nightingale buildings are sold at cost. So at cost means there's quite a lot of costs involved in you know, designing and building a building. The design costs money. Getting the money to build the building costs money, so money costs money. Um, and obviously building the building costs a lot of money. So those are all project costs. Um, we add all of those up um, prior to selling the building. We add a contingency to that in case things change during the build. Um, and then we divide that amongst all the apartments in the building. Um, so I guess another way to call it would be... Uh, Wholesale housing, I guess. Um, so that restrictive Nightingale caveat that is placed on the deed of the apartment is intended so that um, we don't, people don't speculate on the eventual uplift of the value of the apartment um, and aren't taking advantage of that effort to sell it at what it exact, exactly what it costs to build. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, yeah. So a few, there are a few more aspects to Nightingale which are kind of new developments and are sort of happening in the newer buildings. So as of the Nightingale Village, which is a collection of six buildings, um, all of the buildings will have... So the first 20% of apartments are sold off-market to community housing providers uh, and they will then rent these apartments out to affordable housing clients at 20% below the market rate. And a further 20% of Nightingale apartments are sold, again, sort of pre-market via a priority ballot. Um, and the, this priority ballot is only open to people that work in the key services. So, for example, teachers, nurses, police, fireys, people whose wa wage growth is particularly slow, but who they're also people who are essential to the running of our city and are constantly being pushed further and further away from their um, places of work. Uh, the priority ballot is also open to Indigenous Australians and people with a disability. Um, so, yeah, I think just to summarise in relation to what you said, I think what Nightingale is trying to do from a, from a privatised perspective, we don't get any funding from government or anything like that, we're trying to do... We're sort of trying to lever leverage in some ways the wealth of middle-class Australians to provide them something that they really need, which is good quality affordable housing, and in turn, we're sort of using that to create a system of sort of voluntary inclusion rezoning. Um, it's not perfect, but we are working on it constantly. The model is always changing, um, and we expect that it will continue to change, and that's sort of what we intend and is one of the benefits of not being attached to government, of being light-footed, um, of being, a, you know, a skinny operation. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, thanks. Just, uh, one thing I think as... 
your, what is your title? Uh, communications and, uh, and community. You didn't really talk too much about how, how you develop community. Uh, within Nightingale, I'm sort of yep. interested to kind of hear how. I mean, it's a key one of the key parts I think mm. of the Nightingale model is the sense of community there and why people buy into it. Can you talk to a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is kind of one of the sticking points of Nightingale in that it's not possible to build community. We don't think um, the best that we can do is create a really good infrastructure around which community can form. So, in going back to some of the design principles. You know, the, uh, the social, the financial and the environmental are all sort of inherently linked. So I think perhaps an example of that would be um, like communal spaces. So all Nightingale buildings have a number of communal spaces, so gardens and laundries and things. To take a laundry, for example, by removing the laundry from each individual apartment, that saves like, I think, a couple of cubic metres of space and thereby saves money um, in terms of plumbing and in space as well. And then moving that up to the rooftop to have a communal space where everyone does their laundry in the same in the same place. It's around, this is sort of an example of the infrastructure of community that we can create. Um, but essentially, it is really up to the people who buy into a Nightingale building to build their own community and we help them with that as much as we can. But yeah, I think it, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. But so far, um, so far it seems to be going well, I think, yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to that a little bit in the discussion as well. Um, but thank you for that, Jessica. Um, I just want to uh, introduce our, our last speaker now. We're really delighted here tonight to have um, Artie Shirley Firebrace. Um, she's a Yorta Yorta elder and an Aboriginal Housing Victoria tenant. Um, Artie Shirley has worked in various community support roles over the years and she'll be speaking about the garden she has designed and constructed and what it means to her in terms of belonging and identity. Thanks. Over to you. I think it's on. Just speak. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> My name's Nikki and I'm a landscape architect and I'm working at Aboriginal Housing Victoria um, in our asset management um, team and we um, manage the design and construction of new houses and Aboriginal Housing Victoria is a not-for-profit um, Aboriginal social housing organisation um, and Auntie Shirley is one of our tenants and um, meeting her and seeing her, the, the garden that um, she's a garden design competition winner, I, I think probably three years running um, and, and meeting her and, and seeing her garden is made me um, sort of question further what the role of a designer is um, in terms of creating um, a sense of um, identity and belonging um, and and the assumptions that we sometimes make about um, uh, how we um, design for particular communities or cultures. Um, so I just ask Auntie Shirley maybe to um, describe what's in her garden. We've made a beautiful um, video, which you can't see, but Auntie Shirley is an amazing storyteller. So she'll take you there and describe what's in the garden. And then we might go through some of the elements and talk about um, how they help her um, connect to country and connect to family um, and, and yeah. Thank you very much, Nikki. So what do you, what, what do you want to ask, sister? How did I make my garden? Well, the first thing about it is through my journey in my life, I waited a long, long time to have a garden again because 
It was always in my blood. So I went through all these different journeys in my life where I couldn't have it. And that caused me grief, I suppose you can say, and a sense of loss to who I was um, as a woman but from country. And so at this period of my life, I actually, through the Aboriginal housing, got a letter saying, I have a place. And I thought, wow, I just hope that I've got a place for a garden so that I can really do what is absolutely important for me but for my family and for my friends because that's what this is about. So on this journey, as soon as I seen my home, the first thing I looked for was space and I thought, I've got potential here. I can see it. I've got potential and I thought, I wonder what it's like on the inside. I thought, I hope it's not some little box that makes me feel like in, I'm in prison because I couldn't handle that. So anyways, walk through and I see inside it's got an open space. I went, yes, my lounge room and here's my dining area with an open floor plan. And I thought, yes, I can breathe. This is it. And I thought, wonder what the, the, the bathroom looks like, you know, because certain disabilities and things like that. The first thing I noticed was how big the shower was, how the space was, because with the shower part, oh, sorry, I'm talking, I'm like, I do walk about. Anyways, <laughs> I'll tell you about what's in my gut. Now, I'm leading to that, sis. I'm, I'm you're telling the story. Yeah, hang on. So anyways, now I'm taking you through a journey, storytelling. So anyways, then I thought, oh, I wonder what the backyard's like. I thought, oh, I hope we can have plan C. I walk out. I see weeds everywhere. But I seen a garden bed. And I seen a water tank. And I thought, this is my home. I have my my my. You know, it's facing north up the, to my country. And I thought, I can't wait to get into this, to do my design, to have around me the things that I need mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, that space. And something that I can share with friends and family, my grandchildren, in a healing space. I was sharing the stories and doing all this. So anyways, I'd go get plants. I'd see plants on the side of the road, pot plants on the side of the road, you know, hard rubbish times. And I'd see all these pot plants. And I'd, I'd see there's a pot of gold. So I'd grab that. Yes, I'm going to design vertically. Okay, I've got so much space. And I'm going to have um, dunya, water. So anyways, so then my son's, uh, made up this um, design and I put, um, a, a, what do you call it, a sand pit. But I put goldfish in there. Yeah, goldfish in there because it took me back to country. 
lasagna, which is uh, right up there in the Chuka, because I'm born and bred of a Chuka. So I know the country you're talking about, where the great waters meet, way up there, Dungala, where the great rivers meet. So I thought, yes, yeah. so in go the, the fish. And then I thought, oh, I see people throwing away plants. This is my treasure. So then I'd grab that and then I thought, right, I've got to design up this way. And then I'd have friends and family that would give me plants and we'd share, you know, we'd share with each other, we'd share stories. You know, watching um, all those beautiful gardening shows and um, it's an amazing experience. And I want everybody to have that, especially in units, because I know what it's like too to live there. Now, what else you want to ask Tell us about the veggie garden. Oh, my veggie garden. So at the moment, I'm learning about all that too because it's another world. So, um, you know, I've grown corn in there and I share it with my sister. I love sharing the food. And silver beet, when family come, I feed family. And so I've noticed with them their interest in gardening. And when certain family or, or people come around and I can see they're troubled or not happy because I've made myself a nanny cave. Turn that garage into a groovy nanny cave. <laughs> a really beautiful sitting space where you can look out into the garden where I've got roses and I've got a miniature um, lemon tree full of lemons. Miniature peach. Um, uh, 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 not blackberries, uh, blueberries. blueberries, raspberries, all potted. And I've got orange, all in pots. And so I watched... The, 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 yeah, oh, you've got to have lemons. You know why? Because our people, we love to squeeze lemon juice on chops. But who can afford a chop these days, eh? <laughs> or even a flap. <laughs> Or even a, you know, shank. <laughs> and what about the flowers and the roses? And oh, yeah, the colours. But it's the sound. So when I sit in my garden and I just hear the sounds of the birds and I watch the bees and the peace within that, you know, we're off, and, and, and for other people to experience it. And my grandchildren to experience and the roses. Because you'd be amazed how much our people love roses. But the smell, you know, and so when you see these different colours and the different smells, it sets off healing. Very important business. Very, very crucial. But like we were saying about the seasons, crucial business. But learning also about the soils and how all that works, it's a new world. And so I've, um, I absolutely love it and adore it. And I wish everybody had that opportunity, you know, because not only that, what it does, it, it assists in building families. Well, the individual, you talked about community development, empowering the individual, empowering the family, empowering your neighbourhood. That's what this is about. And it's crucial to have that in our lives, you know. So I've been able to share that. And what else, sister? Oh, that's pretty good. Okay. Yeah, let's check about the fish. 
Yeah, that's good. I think maybe we can um, maybe we can pause it there. No, we're not done yet. But um, but <laughs> thank you, Anitya. That was great. Um, I think we're going to start to um, open up a bit of a conversation here, and um, I, I might start kick it off kick it off by asking um, a couple of questions. And I think you know we really talk about. I think it's a good point, um, Jessica, about how you know like you can't actually sort of manufacture community. But there's a number of things going on at, at um, Nightingale that really assist in developing that sense of community. And I think one of the one of the greatest things actually is this sort of um, traditional models of, of procurement of buildings is, you know, you, you design this thing and it goes out to the real estate market. So you're designing for the broadest possible market. But what Nightingale does is actually target... Nightingale's not going to suit everyone. It, does, it designs for a very particular sort of market and it, and it designs directly for them. And it actually talks to that market before it starts to building. So it's actually it's actually learning from the people who are actually going to live in the space and then ballots down to, you know, they decide who goes into it. So in effect, you do sort of curate a community. So it's, it's actually allowing the space for that to develop. So I wonder, you know, how, how can we... In, in, non, in other sort of models of housing, allow that community to develop. And I was going to sort of use the example, and I think Artie Shelley's talked to it in, I used to live in South Yarra in a house that had a big, you know, six foot high wall around it. And I didn't meet any of my neighbours in 11 years. And we moved to Northcote, which is a very different neighbourhood, I might, I might add, but we knocked down any fences and took over the front garden and made a productive garden. And we talked to everybody in the street because you're out in the front garden all the time. So how do you allow that to happen in, in a much more intense environment of the apartments? Yeah, I think um, it is, for a start, there is obviously a certain amount of priming that happens before you come into a Nightingale. Um, you probably have like a certain understanding of what it is that you're going into. Um, generally, people who are keen to go into Nightingales do um, are concerned environmentally and want to find a way to live with less impact. And then generally that is um, people's higher priority and then the social and financial are kind of um, happy bonuses, I guess. Um, but yes, we do... We do in Architects do engage with residents bef well before they move into the building, so we don't we don't pick who goes into the building. It is a random ballot, but there is a certain amount of um, yeah, like I said, priming that happens before people will enter that. So I guess you could say that it is in some ways curated. I guess um, based on the sort of information that we put out and the sort of message that we um, that goes along with the Nightingale building. Um, and so, yeah, there is, a, there is quite a bit of engagement that happens with the purchasers before they ballot, after they're successful in the ballot and in the lead-up to um, settlement. Um, so the residents of a building will probably meet each other, um, I don't know, maybe 15 times before they move into their building. So already a lot happens in that time, especially if you're waiting for a building to get built and you're really excited about it, you're tr and you have access to the other people that are going to be in that building and you have expectations about what kind of building it, it's, it, you want it to be and how you want it to be to live there, then, yeah, that, that gives a really, really good head start. And then I think the sort of mechanism that we provide that supports that the best is the caveat. Um, and as I said before, that caveat is designed to deter investment and it's specifically designed to get owner-occupiers to live there um, and it's specifically designed to slow down the flow of people through that apartment. So this idea of community and identity, both those things take a really long time. Uh, and you can't do that if you're living somewhere for six months, 11 months, and live with the expectation that you will be moved on eventually. So um, 
I think though, like those two things, the sort of um, anticipation and then that caveat are, you know, sort of the best tools that we have to make community. Do, do you think you can? Do you think those things can happen in a non-Nightingale model? Or can you allow? I mean, how do, how do we get those sort of that sense of community to happen? Because it's so often lacking in those big apartment developments, so people sort of come into the car park and go straight up to their door, and there's you know they're in a tiny corridor. There's not. I mean, quite often, like it's like the. The, the laundries at Nightingale, it, it actually you know, forces people to come together and talk because you're standing there, you know, dividing each other's underwear between between yourselves. So, you know, like there's, there's that, it, it forces the opportunity for interaction. So, how, and I think Marty mm. talked to that a little bit too. How, how do you get that to happen in a bigger? I think that the, um, the architecture of the 60s and the 70s might have a few clues to that because there are a number of older um, apartment blocks around Melbourne that do have the communal laundries. Um, there's some in Fitzroy that have a particularly incredible garden which is themed throughout the development. You know, there's like a Japanese section or whatever. So there's really clear, distinct spaces that create identity. But then, yeah, the, the, um, the walk-ups do have these shared areas. I, although it's just anecdotal evidence that I only know of feuding occurring in those laundries. But, you know... <laughs> I guess if there was sort of more discussion around building community or something, a bit of facilitated communications around it, then that could be resolved. Um, well, and I think I just uh, look, I'll come to, I'll come back to everyone in a sec. I just wanted to, um, Professor Carl. I mean, I think you know you, you talked about some big um, some big issues there, so I'm going to I'm going to ask you a big question. Um, you know, I don't. I, you know, how how do we get the housing we need? How do we deliver it? I mean, Nightingale, as much as as we love it, and we think it's great, it's kind of playing around the edges to some degree. Although I do think the the the, the changes, it's not. It's a demonstrable sort of um, way of, of developing in that it's changed the way developers have actually tackled the. You know, we've lots worked with lots of developers who say I want to do a Nightingale thing. You know, somehow. So whether they do or not, at least they're thinking about that, and it has changed. We're the very way flattered. They, yeah, the way they think about development, and they're providing much more amenity and other things as a result. But but in some ways, is that just tinkering around the edges still? You know, how do we provide you know radical change? We're heading for housing crisis. We're not developing enough enough you know yeah, housing I mean, for everybody. And I think that's you know at the front end what I'm talking about a, a national community development strategy that incorporates housing as part of it. Um, because I think, like, these kind of models are good, but how, how much can you scale up and bring that to middle and outer suburbs? How much are people willing to take that on? I think there's lessons to be learned, but, I mean, from my perspective, I start to think back about larger programs that can, if we, if we want to, if we have to work within the context of a market, you can look at something like low-income housing tax credits, which essentially provide... Um, a stimulus for private sector to invest as a syndicate in the large-scale funding of affordable housing. So they get a return on that investment over time, and that upfront money gets given to community housing providers, which provide um, affordable housing. And this is, I mean, this is another U.S. program that's been going on since the 1980s that, I mean, has delivered, like, an incredible, like, you know, over a million affordable housing units. I mean... At the same time, that said, you know, obviously, in the U.S., we're struggling with affordable housing in some places, like at tremendous levels. But, but I mean, it's 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 really beginning to think through at that broad scale. But then also taking it down about, 
I mean, thinking about the kind of housing that people need also needs. It's not just about the quantity, but it's yeah. about the housing that people need. I think is really important as part no, of that. No kind. doubt. I mean, but, but I, I mean, I think in Australia we have one of the lowest rates of institutional um, superannuation investment in housing. It's compared to world, you know, to other places around the world, it's actually really low. So if we can incentivise that, that'd be great. But do you think do you think it's going to happen without legislation? I, I mean, I think you know the market's not going to deliver what we need. Is it? We need. No, to, I mean, we, we need. need to, I mean, that's but that's the purpose of public policy is to step in to fill gaps in what the market is not delivering. I mean, obviously, you know, a real estate developer, property developer is there to make a profit, make money. And that's not their primary interest in most cases is not to deliver affordable, equitable housing, obviously. So that's the role of public policy or, or planning. I mean, whether it's housing or public safety or whatever. I mean, Are you getting it right in Singapore with the HDB? Oh, yeah, go. Just comes in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you'll have to explain to me what that is. We're about to go to the audience, so just, yeah, just did a headline. So a wider, wider scale... Yeah, a conversation, I, yeah, I Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. A wider scale uh, public housing model like the HDB in Singapore, is that getting it uh, any... Can, any can you, for people who don't know about that, can you just describe what that is? Uh, I think it's the Housing Development Board, perhaps, um, but it's a, 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 a much larger scale, uh, obviously with a much tighter... Um, uh, well, much more land pressure... Um, it's, it's a much bigger public housing scheme with various um, levels. With yeah, it. yeah. I mean, yeah. My understanding is the Singaporean government can come in and just say this is going to be eighty percent affordable housing. Um, prop, you know, probably not going to see that happen here politically. Um, so I mean, it just doesn't seem like a viable. So then my question goes yeah. to um, and there's two questions I have. Sorry, Simon. I will come back. To like this I, I could see you itching line. to get in there, Kim. Itching so go line. for it. Um, so the UK and Ireland have policies, and I'm, I'm just wondering if this is what you mean by inclusionary zoning, the idea that, you know, in certain zones, if you develop a site, you must provide 20% affordable housing. Is that what you mean by is it, inclusionary Yes, exactly. Zoning? So yeah. the UK actually has it various, up to 60% in some areas. A lot of places around the world have it. We're, yeah. we're one of the few that doesn't have it. And we, we went with Fisherman's Bend for 6%. It was very exciting. <laughs> Um, I guess my question is, and it's a really simplistic question, but when we talk about affordable housing, and Nightingale, this is a question to you as much as anyone else, what do we mean? What do you mean by affordable housing? Because that's I a think great, everyone I mean, that's says a great, it and no one Yeah, that's a great it. question because it has lots of different meanings for different people. You talked about key workers briefly. There's the very low income. People under housing stress can be at, at various levels. So what's that? I, Yes, and, there, and then people living in poverty below key workers. I mean, there's different scales of affordability that we think about. And I think that's been one of the big problems with the U.S. model is we talk about affordable housing, 20% affordable housing is fairly standard, but that tends to be just right about median income. It doesn't go much below, and so there's a lot of people that get left out. You know, there's no real safety net for them. So that's a, you know, crucial question to ask. It has, it has Who's been, it affordable for? It has for? been legislated now in the planning scheme of what, what actually constitutes affordable housing and how it's pinned to medium incomes. And I mean, the standard well, is, you know, yeah. uh, the yeah, standard look, is the bottom 40%, I mean, yeah. of the yeah. social housing income. is affordable housing. Is, but, yeah. but there's various definitions. So, sorry, what, oh. so the, the definition that Nightingale, it's, it's been a bit confusing for Nightingale because on the one hand, to that 60% of people that we ballot, that the last 60% of apartments to, we talk about um, financial sustainability. So that deals with reducing the upfront cost of buying an apartment, so selling it at cost, what it costs to build. 
and then that sort of ongoing affordability. But then the sort of communications glitch here is that we also have that 20% affordable housing with a capital A. And we work to the understanding that cap affordable housing, as defined by Victoria, is 20% below the market rental rate for that area. And so, and that is what the community housing providers that we work with, Housing Choices Australia and Women's Property Initiative, that is what they work to as well. So within, and then so all those people in affordable housing with a capital A, which is the 20% below market rate, will also have access to the ongoing affordability measures that we put into the building to further reduce the cost of living compared to a normal rental. So um, lower energy costs, for example. Yeah. But the, big, the bigger problem with that is too is that if you are, you do provide, and we've had situations of this with developers, and they said sort of like you were happy to provide affordable housing, but what does that mean? Who, where does it go? Like who actually manages it? Like who's going to take it over? Who's going to you know, ongoing sort of management of it? And the housing provider sort of scheme here in in Victoria hasn't been that successful, that well managed. So um, some of it is, and some of it's great, and some of the housing providers are fantastic. But um, there's no great mechanisms for that to be rolled yeah. out. So that, that needs to be put one, in place. One follow-up, and, and this is kind of, I guess, getting back to something earlier, but I think it's really important in this context is not to get rid of public land, too. When you're talking about mechanisms for building affordable housing, it seems to be something that we've been doing a lot of, and we're looking at redeveloping aging housing stock, and the way we're going to do that is sell it off to, to build more. And I think... That's just another yeah, major well, strategy. That I think, yeah. wherever, whatever level you're thinking of. I think the government, state government, has started to address that in the latest round of public housing that they're doing. The ones they were doing in the northern, in Northcote and um, other places, they were looking to sell, you know, portions of the land, and have now recognised that what Sydney are doing, which is a ground lease model, so it's a 40-year rental model, back to the private sector, and at the end of that, it goes back to the state, is a much more, is a, is, is a much better way of kind of dealing with that, and they just. The way they do it in Sydney is just structure the deal. So say you know you get this, you know they make it they make it work for everyone, the developer, for the state, for the residents, and provide the perfect model for that to, to be. To, and people are taking it up. It's a it's a great system. So you know we should be doing more of that here. Um, but like uh, we seem to fall, fall way behind Sydney in the way that we develop a lot of our housing. And I think you know the development of apartment standard here was a great initiative, but it's really just catching up. It's really just bringing what was a woeful standard up to what's barely acceptable. So, you know, I think we've still got a long way to go in that. Um, anyone else got some questions over here? Hello, panel. Uh, my name's Jeremy, and I'm currently studying architecture and uh, landscape architecture at UniMelb. And so this question is more about landscape architecture. Um, is there a... Because uh, basically uh, uh, my aspirations are to incorporate landscape architecture and architecture together when designing. So my question is to Auntie Shirley, to Nikki, and to, sorry, I've forgotten your name. Marty, Marty sorry, Marty. Um, is there a way to learn which flora and fauna species are traditionally in indigenous to the site on which you're about to design, so as to be able to reincorporate those ec ecosystems uh, into design or allow them to develop? Um, and also, uh, when, when designing carefully, is it good to balance between indigenous species and non-indigenous species, or should we try to aim for indigenous species primarily? Um, yeah, there's quite a few different um, online resources for the indigenous plants of the area. First port of call will be 
or go to council. They always have um, quite extensive lists of species that they um, prefer. I assume you're talking about sort of public open space projects. So that would be a good starting point and then you can go from there, I guess. Um, that green book, Catherine Bull, what was that? Catherine Bull wrote a really fantastic book about um, Victoria's um, Indigenous plant, yeah, flora of Melbourne. That's a, a great resource as well. Um, in terms of whether or not you want to plant with um, Indigenous or um, exotics, I think that there, um, you need to make a decision for yourself as a designer, um, dependent on the project, um, the function, the site, the, um, the maintenance program and make a call on that yourself. Um, for me, I typically go with Indigenous palette but then will um, add in or consider exotics for certain moments as features or, you know, or if you're designing something specifically where roses might be super relevant, then, you know, Arnie Shirley sort of talked earlier about colour and texture and sometimes I think that there needs to be a bit of acceptance for, for doing that for, for clients. Um, and, and you know, I'm not going to deny my mother a good rose, so... What do, what do you think about that, Arnie Shirley? Well, um, the thing for me is, is to really know about this business, go to Aboriginal people. We have so many wonderful Aboriginal people from... The Bunurongs, Radri, Rundri, all through that know all about that. All you need to do is, and we've got um, Nikki here, there are so many Aboriginal people and books where Aboriginal people have written them that hold the truth to your story. It is all there. Just link in with Aboriginal people and there's many of them that will, and there are things like that that do happen. Where, in, especially when it's coming to um, um, very important sites, it has to be investigated by Aboriginal people first because there's a lot to consider to do with the waterways, all sorts of things, burial play, all sorts of things to consider. And we have a wealth of um, knowledge talk with Aboriginal people. It's there. It's a gold mine. Uh, the, the other great advantage of um, Indigenous planting too is what it brings in terms of um, bird life and other native fauna and things. I live in on, just on Mary Creek in Northcote and it's amazing the amount of bird life and things we have that come to the native plants. It's quite incredible. Can I ask a follow-up question to that from the landscape designers? Um, that is not at all nightingale related, it's farm related. Um, we, using my opportunities here, we are doing a hell of a lot of um, tree planting on our farm uh, but we are faced with the issue that a lot of th some of the native species indigenous to that particular area are dying out because they're not tolerant of drought and droughts are increasing and so for example like blackwoods don't seem to be doing that well what is the sort of current thinking about planting still indigenous species but from different parts of the country that may not necessarily be endemic to that area but uh, may have a better chance in the coming climate change situation? Uh, I, I would be out of line to give advice on your, 
on your site no. and your species it's and your not, property, but I know that, like, so I guess that's why I do say that we need to be able to sometimes accept some sort of variations from Indigenous species to accommodate climate, the current climate condition that we're in and also the, the sites. And I speak directly to you if you're doing architecture and landscape architecture that you may end up doing a lot of, you know, podium landscapes and, um, you know, Rush Right, we did the rooftop landscape at the VCCC, which is the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Um, and that's got a whole range of um, Indigenous species, but also some from Queensland to ensure the right growth tolerance to um, highly controlled environments. So, yeah, I think that it has to be project specific, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't comment on, I don't know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, look at your species selection, your soil, your local environment. Um, definitely plant smaller pot sizes rather than advanced. Use mulch, use heaps of mulch. Um, look at potentially planting in as, as a group rather than one single tree. Plant a group of them. Um, you'll notice that where the trees survive, there's a grouping of trees. So they're more like they uh, sort of protect each other. There you go, free, free consultation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that you'll need to consider with planting. And I'm really surprised about the blackwoods um, having an issue. I would think it could be a drought issue. It could be that they're being attacked by um, some sort of insect or there's a, something going on there. So blackwoods are really hardy, very much a, a Victorian Indigenous um, tree. So, yeah, I'm really surprised. I mean, soil health that. is one of the, the yeah, best things we can do for yeah, you know, our country generally, isn't it, in terms of water retention and things. <laughs> if, we, if we improve the soil health across and the that, nation... And that's the would... other thing as well. It might be just the local area where you're planting that you'll need to, to just do that. Um, but, yeah, there's yeah. a couple of factors what? that you can think about. Sorry, I just wanted to add to that because the great measures too of is what's happening in the rivers... Okay, this is very, very important because when you look what, like the Darling, where all those fish have died, there is a test. What is wrong? Because that's where the truth lies. So what is going in there but what is taken out of it? Okay, these things are very real for all of us because even as you're saying with the planning and all those sorts of things like that, if you interfere with the veins of the earth, it's like our veins. Same thing, you'll have a heart attack. And that's exactly what's happening. So there's a lot of thinking to do here, a lot of serious thinking to do. The earth, as you said, but as, um, Professor, you talk about planning. This is very, very important business. You know, as it goes into landscaping, it goes into Farm, it goes into everything. There's a lot to consider here in making the right decision. Because when I was a little girl and I lived in Moama, I remember the days when the Murray River used to flood and used to be full of the black swans and food everywhere. Now when I go up home to country, excuse me, I look down like that, even to see the water. That is a story within itself. And these are things we must be very careful of. And that's why I'm glad that we're sitting here because you cannot exclude it. Because I remember the days going back 
when the earth was turning to salinity. You would know about this, don't you? When that happens to the earth, it means it is dead. The earth is dead. Nothing will grow there, will it? As you know, because you live up in, in my traditional lands. These things are very, very important to take into consideration. The other thing when I was listening to you um, earlier on is why does everything have to be so centralised? Why is it not decentralised? I mean, how are you going to cope with the populations? How is this going to be coped with? Yet alone with the water, you know, and the spreading out for businesses to go out there to build that capacity. Why does everything have to be here? We won't be able to have. We won't be able to handle this. Yeah. No. Do you want? I mean, I can answer. I mean. Yes. Would you yeah. Say? I mean, because cities are fundamental, fundamentally about um, economies. Unfortunately, that's the reality, and it's going to have a negative environmental impact mm -hmm. if we don't plan around yeah. it. But it's because all these buildings here have jobs in them. And, yeah. you know, financial center, and yeah. they benefit from being together in terms of the trading mm -hmm. of economic activity they do. So that's why we get these very highly centralized agglomerations of uh, yep. economies and, and cities. Like yeah, so I understand that. Is that why our poor farmers are suffering? There's no priority I, I, I in that. I can't answer that. <laughs> not there you go. You got me. Um, do we have any other burning questions out there? Because I'm going to start to sort of wind it up, if not. Um, last chance, anyone? Um, I wanted to ask one last question um, to Marty, and this might be a tricky one, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because um, I did ask this question um, back of Rem Coolhouse when he was here at the M Pavilion a long time ago. We talked about... Uh, Name and, he, and it had a very unsatisfactory answer to it, so I'm going to maybe think that you might answer this better. So if we think about, like, largely most of the... You talked about this, about equity of space um, and, and equity in space, particularly in public space. And I mean, if we think about the, most of the spaces in the world have been designed, public space in the world has been designed by men, what would it look like if it wasn't? And, uh, and how would that change? And what, what, we may, what, what the difference be? Um, well, 9.3% of it would be converted back into a park. <laughs> no, I refer to the... Um, that's just tongue-in-cheek. I um, recently... Um, was on the winning team for the Future Park competition that was run by the AILA and as a part of the Future... No, was it the conference called? Uh, Square and Park. And, um, yeah, we won that based on putting forward an idea that uh, we should take back 9.3% of Melbourne and convert it back into a park. Um, and we didn't program the park. We just hypothesised about then what that would do for Melbourne. So I guess... We pitched it around um, this idea that, you know, we, we used to, Melbourne used to have these wedges and they've sort of been reduced, eroded over time and I guess that, um, you know, from a, from a gender equity, equitable perspective, if we, if we did have women sort of designing, I, um, probably, you know, that's one example. Like it might be a bigger move. Um, Another one, I was at the XYX um, tram lab the other day and it was a room full of um, female stakeholders from a whole range of different government organisations as well as a whole group of students from La Trobe University. Um, and it was a, just a really incredibly fascinating workshop where they had... 
it was the most, it was the best curated thing I've ever been to. But they had these sessions on um, a whole range of different things around like technology or space design or um, PSOs and all these, all a whole lot of elements of our sort of city and our transport system. And then we reconceived what they could be, how they could be redesigned. And um, the outcomes for that were, were um, from spatial outcomes through to, um, you know, alarm goggles and uh, um, things on your glasses so that then if you feel threatened, then, you know, you've got a way of sort of reporting that. Um, so a whole range of outcomes. So I guess, you know, the, the sky's the limit is the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> more, more toilets, free tampons. That's what's missing here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks, Zicky. Um, look, I, I think we're sort of going over time there, so um, I, my job is somehow to try and wrap that that up, but um, I don't think I'm really going to attempt that too much because it's such a... Um, Empty more toilets. <laughs> yeah, we could sort of just end on that. Um, uh, but I do think what we've seen here um, holistically is what happens when you get the, you know, it's a big, it's, it's a big topic and we've covered a broad range um, of subjects within that. And, you know, we've only just really touched the surface and there's a lot of things we could sort of dive into any of the things we've started to, to talk about here. But this is what you get when you start getting the Planning Institute, Landscape and Architects all discussing the issues together. And what we can see then is it's um, it's a collective problem um, of housing and, and identity and community and we need to be solving that together. Um, and whether that's, you know, men, women and other uh, people within our society kind of coming together or um, or different ethnicities or uh, traditional owners and, and non-traditional owners um, of land I mean all those and all those professional groups really do need to join together because it's a big it's a big topic to, 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 to change but um, we need to do it quickly like a lot of things in our society or we're headed for some sort of um, doom scenario and I think particularly with housing so um, hopefully uh, things like Nightingale and these types of um, these types of small initiatives can really start to change things at a bigger level, and they already are. So um, hopefully that continues, and hopefully the government. Um, and I think that the state government here does start to understand that. I think Richard Wynne, um, his his heart is in the right place, and I hope the legislation will start to come into play that will start to really radically change the way we deliver housing across our state. So. Um, uh, I think, look, mostly people will be sort of hanging around a little bit, so you can probably come up and ask some other questions if you've got them. I want to thank you, Auntie Shirley. Thanks, Nikki. Um, thank you, Professor Carl. <laughs> thanks, Jessica and Marty. Um, and um, and thank you to M Pavilion for hosting us tonight. Um, um, and uh, look, there's lots of really good M Pavilion talks coming up over the next couple of months, so make sure you come down. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.